listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to science journalist Gemma Milne. Hype only has power in its illusion. And if more people started from a mindset of critical thinking, hype wouldn't have its power. Gemma shared her insights into how the hype machine impacts the way scientific advances are communicated, how technology companies work to attract interest and attention, and how the general public can better engage in critical thinking when faced with the possibilities offered by new innovations. This episode is an edited version of a recent live stream event. You can view the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net. Hype has become an essential tool for scientists and technologists. It's used to attract investors, gain the attention of the media, and drive support from the general public. But hype can also mislead, distract, and in some cases disrupt scientific progress. In her new book, Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It, Gemma Milne explores the impact that bold claims have on our perception of recent innovations, including artificial intelligence, quantum computing, brain-computer interfaces, cancer drugs, future foods, and fusion energy. But Gemma, I want to kick off by asking you this. What is hype? Is it an exaggeration to say that it's a, it's a form of marketing or a form of advertising, or is hype just straight up lying? <laughs> yeah, this is one of the questions that I uh, actually, in some sense, was struggling to answer for quite some time when I first started working on the book. I interviewed about 60 people for the book and I asked them all, you know, what does hype mean to you? How would you define it? And almost every time you got this very emotional answer, oh, it's this annoying thing that gets in the way of truth and da 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 da, and which was definitely sort of where I started. You know, I wrote the book particularly from a place of frustration to begin with. Um, But over time, I came to kind of think of hype as more of a tool. And the reason that I kind of got to there was because I did actually want to separate it from misinformation and disinformation, because there's obviously quite a lot out there already about it. And I wanted to focus on particular phenomenon. So the way I, the sort of anecdote I use, which is part of the reason why the book's called Smoke and Mirrors, um, is around uh, fooling. So if you if you go to a magic show, you're being sort of consensually fooled. You know, you're walking in and saying, fool me, or, or I'm going to try and work it out, but you're, it's okay for you to try. Non-consensual fooling is also called lying, which is where I would also put kind of fake news and and deliberate uh, disinformation or misinformation. Um, Hype, I think of as a tool that can sometimes cause accidental fooling. So the person who's putting out is not necessarily trying to lie or trick or mislead, at least not in a sort of really detrimental way. They're not trying to kind of um, get you to think the wrong thing. Um, But when taken out of context, hype can cause uh, misinformation. So I suppose the, the definition I'm coming to smoke and mirrors with is this idea of a tool for exaggerated publicity or the use of advertising to get a message across. So in your opinion, Gemma, do you think hype, do you think it interferes or hinders with scientific progress or does it actually help it? I mean, both. It's it's a, it's a tool, right? So you can use it whichever way you please. My plead in the book is for people to use it more responsibly. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, yeah, at the end of the day, we, we need hype. We need to be able to make the complex simple. We need to cut through all of the information that's out there on the internet. We need to be able to, to surface important ideas and important messages, particularly when it comes to things like, uh, you know, public campaigns around health, for instance. Um, but yes, I do um, argue uh, that it can disrupt 
it can distract, it can keep a status quo that we don't want, um, it can send people around the, the down the wrong alleys, it can cause opportunity cost if it you know pushes investment in certain places and not in others. So it's there's a lot of different kind of um, shall we say results of this accidental fooling which are not always um, beneficial for society. Now, now, you're a science journalist, but it, it wasn't always that way. You started your career at WPP's advertising agency, Ogilvy. And I just wonder, what did you learn in the advertising industry about this thing called hype? Yeah, uh, lots. <laughs> I think I also crafted my, um, shall we say, emotional relationship with it there too. Um, <laughs> but actually, I actually would say I started my career in investment banking. Um, I wasn't there very long, but that was where I originally um, started. And the department I was in was uh, is called Equity Capital Markets. And the job there is selling IPOs. Um, so, you know, it's a sales job, really. It's a hype job, right? Trying to get investors all over the world excited about what you're doing. I was obviously very junior. I wasn't traveling. But, you know, I, so I suppose I've always been attracted to this idea of like, how do you tell stories? How do you kind of um, get people to believe most of the time, really exciting, interesting things? How do you kind of, um, you know, my always say one of my life's goals is to try and prove to my mum that Euler's theorem is amazing. I studied maths at uni and she, every time I speak about it, she's like, um, so, but when I got to Ogilvy, I started off in the advertising team and the account management team for American Express. And so of course we were creating hype, shall we say, or, or advertising for for the business. Um, didn't last all that long in there. I didn't like it, but I ended up in corporate innovation. And that's actually where I think I got my much more nuanced and emotional, um, I suppose, understanding of hype where, you know, my job was to go and meet startups, meet interesting people and bring them into the agency. And so I was going to tech conferences all over the world where, of course, you're hearing startup pitches and corporate execs getting on stage. I was getting on stage as a, as a corporate exec, telling people about what Ogilvy was doing in, an, in the innovation team. Um, but then I was also having clients come to me as the representative at Ogilvy and the innovation team going, hey, can we do something innovative? And of course, we're a marketing agency. So, you know, when they say we want to do something innovative, it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be innovative it's that they want to be seen to be innovative and so I suppose there was times where I was like you know helping create hype or helping work out how to create hype um there was times that I was picking it apart and you know I was advising companies saying actually no don't look at that company this one's actually the one that you want to be looking at or you know that startup mm, not so much this one's better you know um so unpicking hype and then obviously um having to push back when maybe being asked to do it in certain ways that I personally didn't think were um neither useful nor responsible. So I don't know. I think it was a lot of, you know, growing up with the idea of what hype meant to me. Um, and after I, well, Ogilvy left me, we, they shut the innovation department. I was made redundant in 2016. I then, you know, started freelancing as a, as a writer and still going to conferences and still seeing these pitches, but instead of thinking about, okay, how do I make this useful for the clients that I work with and the company I work with, it was, okay, how do I analyze this from a more journalistic perspective? And then of course that completely shifts the way you look messages as well. I suppose I've always had kind of an interesting, I suppose, relationship with hype. When it comes to hype, do you think there's a, a fundamental difference to the sort of hype that you hear around consumer technology, such as uh, virtual reality and augmented reality, which don't really feature in the book, versus the sorts of technologies you do feature in the book, the deep tech technologies, the heavily science-laden forms of technologies? I just wonder what sort of differences you see there. In some sense, it's sometimes easier for hype to be misconstrued with deep tech because deep tech tends to be harder to understand. So, you know, it's it's easier to be fooled or it's easier to take the wrong 
idea away from a narrative concerning something really complex, like for instance, quantum computing, because you're not going to feel as empowered to ask a question about it or feel able to go, I'm not sure I agree with that article when you're going, I don't know anything about quantum physics. Whereas with things like VR and AR, I think it's much easier to dive in and have an opinion without, you know, necessarily understanding the technology. It's the same, the sort of analogy I use a lot of time is with, um, uh, music, I say, you know, if I'm in a room at a conference, I'll say, okay, put your hands up if you play a musical instrument and loads of people doing two instruments, three instruments. By the time you get to like five, you maybe got one person in the back and you're like, you're awesome, but cool. And I say, okay, but how many people in the room have an opinion about the new Beyonce album? And loads of people will put their hands up. And it's the same with technology. I think it's, you don't need to understand the inner workings of how an engine works to have an opinion about pollution and petrol and usage of cars, you know? So that's kind of what I want to make the point at. And I deliberately focused on deep tech for that reason that I think this is the the tech that's kind of not being analyzed by people outside of the expertise um, on it because of this complexity. Now you focus on nine different technologies in the book and all of those technologies are deep tech examples. Uh, some might even call them moonshots. And I just wonder all those nine technologies that you feature, which do you think is the most overhyped? It's funny you said the moonshot. I actually originally wanted to call the book Grounding the Moonshots, but I was told that moonshot didn't make sense outside of the sort of tech industry, which I still think is incorrect. But anyway, um, what's the one that's most overhyped? I'd probably say AI. And the reason I say AI is because, frankly, it's just talked about more. There's a lot of really simplified narratives that get repeated over and over and over again. The one in the book that I focus on is robots are going to steal your jobs. Whereas with something like quantum computing, which I would say there's a lot of overhype in there, it's still relatively contained um, in terms of the audience. So I suppose if you're talking about sheer number, it would probably be AI. Maybe, I mean, maybe even some forms of cancer therapeutics. Um, I think immunotherapy is is in some sense overhyped or the way we talk about it is overhyped. I mean, the hard thing with with overhyping things like cancer treatments, and in fact, you focus on this idea of curing cancer and the hype that comes with new drugs that can cure cancer is really the cost of that hype is a human cost. It gets people um, really excited in, in ways in which they think there's there's hope perhaps to save either themselves or their loved ones. There's There's real costs to hype. Yeah, there there is. But it's also why hype does so well, because it's emotional, right? I mean, messages are built to try and make you think a certain thing. I mean, that's that's one of the things you learn about working in advertising agency. There's like the two rules. It's like, know your audience and what's your message. And, you know, I think a lot of the time we forget that a lot of money, research, time and energy goes into how do we not to sound like a conspiracy theory, but how do we manipulate people into believing things, doing things, whatever, through the use of language and and spurring emotions and like making associations between metaphors and all these sorts of things. And when it comes to something like cancer, it's like, well, you know, you could argue that we need a lot of hype around curing cancer so that people donate to charities and are happy when the government spends money on research and when new politicians sort of campaign around upping the investment in R&D and all these sorts of things. If we keep overhyping the idea that we can cure cancer and that these are the ways to do it, we're basically not investing in bigger and better ways to do that. We're kind of stuck with the status quo. Um, so the, the cost of overhyping is I would say more than the cost of underhyping, but the cost of underhyping is you don't have support. So it's this sort of like hype is a double-edged sword and we kind of need it, but we also don't want it. And it's like, how do you 
sit in that weird space in the middle and do things in the most responsible way so that people are not kind of being too badly affected. I mean, to jump to hype's defense for a second, innovation in deep tech, often it feels like it's it's very reliant on hype. Money can be difficult to come by. So yeah. in some cases, the hype can help sustain both investors and consumers, at least their interests and their money in the company, whilst the company tries to work hard to actually get the products out into the world. So is there a good argument for hype? Does it actually give companies the sort of runways they need to affect the sorts of change they want to see in the world? 100%, 100%. It then comes back to the question though, as to, you know, do you think placebos are good? You know, yeah. do you think they're ethical? That's the sort of question I'm posing is this idea of like, how ethical do we see this kind of verging on misinformation or this lack of correcting the record. And we saw this with them, um, with D-Wave, the, the sort of famous startup in the quantum computing space where they massively hyped what they did in order to get investment and all that. And sort of to begin with, you could say it was sort of responsible hyping maybe um, in order to get attention. But then when incorrect narratives are being reported. They weren't saying, oh no, that's that's not actually what we mean. You know, they were kind of riding on that hype. And in the end, there was, you know, there's still a lot of misunderstanding about what they do. And the way I sort of argue it is, well, is there an opportunity cost? Have, you know, them getting the funding and the attention, the media coverage and, you know, buyers, they've got clients, customers. It's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. They've needed that in order to actually now create something that is useful depending on how you analyze it um it depends what you you know whether you think certain use cases of quantum computing are better than others but you know you you could argue that they it was right that they got all that so that they could sort of this thing could materialize but then you could also argue that well the people who were investing what else could they have put money in where else could attention have been i mean then you have the argument of is it a zero-sum game you know maybe not but i think these questions around hype being good or bad I don't actually think is the central question, or at least it's not, it's maybe what I start with, but it's certainly not what I answer at the end. And it's not what I want to focus on um, in the book, because I actually think that if you focus on whether hype is good or bad, you kind of miss the deeper questions, which is, you know, do we want to be investing in these kind of technologies? Do we think that this is a, a fair company? Do we think that the, the people in power are making the right decisions? Like these kind of deeper, harder to answer questions, but that kind of get caught up in hype around hype, <laughs> not to be too meta. The crazy thing about placebos is that placebos work. And in a funny sort of way, you have to well, look so at... Well, so does hype. So does well, hype. Then, exactly. And, and, and you look at the... Um, he features quite regularly in the book, the hype meister himself, Elon Musk, because he's unique in the way in which he's been so successful in using hype to generate uh, futures. I mean, I mean, Elon can make a proclamation and it opens the Overton window of what's possible. And you see that there's real world effects. So Elon can make an announcement about uh, Tesla or batteries or space, and you see real-world changes in his stock market valuation for the companies that he's hyping, that he's espousing. And those stock market valuation changes allow him then to have the, the material of money to then go ahead and generate the future that he wants. So in a funny sort of way, language has a direct relation to the future. In fact, language in that case can actually generate the future that he wants to see. So should we actually see hype as a useful tool that we should all learn as scientists and technologists and as futurists, all learn how to use correctly because it can affect that real change? 
I think that the way Elon Musk goes about things is highly immoral. Again, it depends on what you value, right? If you value Tesla and SpaceX and, and whatnot, and you think that they are universally good, then you could argue that it's warranted what he's doing. There's many things that Elon does that aren't good treatment of workers being one of them. Um, so I would argue that could that money focus expertise be better spent elsewhere? I mean, Elon's not the genius. The people in his companies are. There's other people that can do that stuff. So I, this idea of like the sole genius is, I think, highly problematic and hyped up in and of itself. So and also it depends on what you mean by value. I mean, stock market value it's not the same as real real world value. And yes, it means there's more money in the bank, but it doesn't necessarily uh, translate into good product. You know, there's many discussions about the, the real value of, of many of Elon Musk related products not being that great. So, you know, so again, it comes back to, do you think that this is fair game and everyone's going to have a different answer to that. But if we don't kind of open up those discussions, you, you end up in a... You basically have to have a world where if you assume that we're never going to be able to, you know, teach everyone about this, right? If you if you start there and say, everyone's going to get caught up in hype all the time, there's no point trying to change it. So should we manipulate the masses in order to create a good society or should we invest in educating the masses and then more people can be part of the discussion? And it's kind of this like, you know, on one side of a coin, you've got this two perfect worlds, one where there's perfect information and one where there's perfect trust and everyone acts in a moral way. Neither of those exist. So it's kind of, where do you sit in these this sort of spectrum in between? I would like to sit closer towards perfect information as opposed to perfect trust because I don't think I I don't think humans are going to get there. We can't work towards that. We can work towards better information. And my, I suppose, angle that I'm coming at is going to the masses and going this is how you can act in a way that essentially makes the world a better place by you not always so easily falling for this. And that doesn't mean that Elon Musk suddenly doesn't get believed and he's doing bad things and everyone's like, da, 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 da. it means that people understand in a more transparent way what he's doing and why. And even the conversation we're having right now, you know, that the kind of, is it fair game? Everyone should be able to be part of that discussion and decide whether they think it's fair game as opposed to being part of the the fooled. And that's kind of what I, I'm trying to do with the book. I want to say to people, you know, sometimes you'll get fooled and sometimes that's okay, but you it, you have a right to kind of be aware of it. And I, I really want to empower more people to feel able to, to sit in it and not feel helpless against it. Because I think a lot of people do feel helpless and I don't think that's fair. I don't want to labour the point, but the idea that language itself can literally speak the future into existence is is what I'm trying to get at. And a good example of this is self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, people can say certain things and that affects a certain way in which um, a society operates and therefore that thing comes about out because it becomes a vicious cycle. I think the most recent example would probably be toilet paper. The yeah. rush on toilet paper was really about suddenly someone heard that maybe there was something wrong with the, the cardboard inside of the toilet roll. So they started to panic by toilet roll. So people started to see that there was no toilet roll on the shelf. So they kept panic buying it and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Suddenly there was no toilet roll. I would challenge that look to some extent. Yes. But actually, if you look at supply chains, it's a different story. The the, the language actually it, it doesn't have as much of an impact as you think. So if you if you take back and look at the system, which is what I always try and advocate for, if you look at the system as to how toilet paper gets into supermarkets, right? 
more people are at home a lot. So therefore, we need more toilet paper in the homes instead of in offices. So instead of where offices normally bulk buy from completely different suppliers, everybody's going to Sainsbury's or to Tesco. So the same volume of toilet roll is being used, but it's from different suppliers. So it's not just the case that people were bulk buying and there was none. It was that Sainsbury's doesn't normally account for so many people needing to buy toilet paper from those individual branches every single day. And so they had to completely change the supply chain to simply just get more in to basically divert from where... So, I agree with you that I agree with you this idea that, that of course, I mean, of course, words matter. Like, look, the pen is mightier than the sword. Like, uh-huh. look at Hitler. Like, the words matter. Things happen because of words. Of course, I agree with you. But I do think that there's more to be said around words not necessarily always being useful and that it's important that people understand these broader systems and then can take the words into context and make their own decision as opposed to just trusting the words. And and that's really what Smoke and Mirrors is about. I, I, I love how we've gone from quantum computing to toilet paper in the, in the course <laughs> of the first of the first 30 minutes. And the reason I labour the point around self-fulfilling prophecy is because the examples of banks, uh, certain banks collapsing, there's been historical examples of where there's been a rumour that perhaps a certain bank doesn't have a, the amount of liquidity that it needs. And that causes a physical run on the bank and people queue up outside, they take their money out of the bank and self-fulfilling prophecy yeah, being Rock. self-fulfilling prophecy the bank collapses anyway. It wouldn't have if uh, if that story hadn't happened in the first place. And to apply that to, to hype, it's very similar to the positivist movement in a similar sort of way. The idea that if you can dream something that you can make it happen. And, and hype is, is it feels like a, a at least a, a weird sibling of the positivist movement, whereby if you're able to drive enough interest towards something, you're able to realise it. This this kind of very techno-optimist way of mm. looking at the world based purely on the fact that if you're able to rally the troops and you're able to generate the external conditions to actually actualise that thing from the future into the present moment. And I just wonder that it's so wonderful that the book uh, uses this term smoke and mirrors because it it feels like hype can almost be used as this magical material to generate yeah. the future in the present. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh God, yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if, you know, getting something amazing into the world wasn't a case of how good you are at talking about it, but rather yeah. how good you are at making it. And I suppose uh-huh. that's my pushback. It's like, I'm a good speaker. I'm a good writer, all that sort of thing. Should I get more say on the future versus someone who's a great engineer or a great doctor or a great lawyer who doesn't speak quite so well or doesn't write quite so well or isn't quite as compelling in the way they put their ideas across? I don't think that's fair. What I'm trying to argue in Smoke and Mirrors and what I believe is that, yes, if you want to get stuff in the world, you have to get people on board and, and all that sort of thing, but it shouldn't be enough in and of itself. And sometimes when hype goes wrong, it is and that's where problems happen because we rely too much on the dream, the so-called dreams, the the narratives, the way things are spoke about, as opposed to the actuality and reality of the way that they're being brought into the world and the ethics around how they're being brought into the world. It's not enough to rely on narrative. So I suppose I agree with you that I think, you know, we need I'm I'm optimistic. I'm I'm very optimistic. And I think that we we need to be optimistic. We need to, you know, talk about why things are amazing and, and talk about, you know, these imagined futures and all that sort of stuff. I agree with you. But equally, if we don't have the people on the other end of that message, you know, critically thinking around it, not assuming it's wrong, not immediately going, nah, you're wrong, rubbish, but going, that's interesting, huh? 
huh, you really tickled me there. I wonder about this and I wonder about that. And oh, I wonder if I can help you or oh, I wonder if there's any voting happening on this or I wonder what's happening with the money. And oh God, I've seen something problematic, but I still really believe in this idea. I think it's great. So now that I've spotted something, what can we do to try and make it better? So it's not about trying to halt people. It's genuinely, it's coming from an optimistic place. I think that if people were more conscious of hype, more able to contextualize it, more people would be able to get involved. And I hope that that would mean that things would be better that we'd actually be able to weed out the stuff that's not worth doing for society and stuff that is. So I agree with you. I just don't think it's enough. Words aren't enough. They're powerful, but they're not enough. Uh, just one of your thoughts on the the current landscape of tech and science journalism, because it feels like science and tech journalism is to a degree having a resurgence. We're seeing more and more online platforms espousing these these wonderful science and tech innovations. And before we only had things like Wired magazine, but now we have numerous outlets focusing purely on these science and tech ideas. So do you think, Gemma, that science and tech journalism is stronger than it's ever been? I mean, I haven't done an analysis as such comparing science journalism in the 50s versus now. Um, I would hope that more people doing it would mean that it's better. I think there are quite a lot of platforms that don't do a very good job of science, science and tech journalism. And I suppose the way I tend to separate it out is this idea of you've sort of two forms of, of um, comms around science. You've got whiz bang, isn't this amazing? And then you've got critical thinking. And there's lots of investment, lots of focus, lots of interest, lots of government money into this whiz bang because it's also really tied with education too. But there's a lot of whiz bang and a lot of platforms, I would say most of the platforms to some degree focus on this whiz bang. But the idea of critical thinking around science, I think because some people kind of associate it with lacking trust in experts or, you know, being negative or, you know, investigative journalism has to be bad, you know, all this sort of stuff. And it's like, actually, no, I think that critically thinking and encouraging critical thinking around science and tech is way more interesting than being like, look at this meteor, isn't it amazing? Like, no, like tell me some actual information about it and tell me why it's so crazy that it's made it here and tell me what's problematic about it. And maybe it's because I'm a total nerd. I love systems. I think supply chains are fascinating. I love systems. If we can be better at explaining the interconnectedness of stuff and how science is not just this thing on its own, but rather how it's, it impacts, how it's part of society, how there's many different elements to it other than just, you know, what's the paper, what's the tech. I think that's more interesting way of talking about science and tech. And we are seeing more focus on that. I think Wired sometimes does that really, really well. And other times it falls into the whiz bang. Nothing wrong with whiz bang. I just think that there's enough of that. And I, I, I am seeing more of the kind of deeper stuff, which is great. I just hope that people are reading it and being, you know, wanting to engage in that kind of science content as opposed to just the Brian Cox, look at the stars, isn't this pretty sort of stuff, which is the lovely. The wonders but, you know. of the uh, quantum Well, there's, there's just a difference between education and kind of entertainment. Uh -huh. And then I think what I'm, what I think is interesting is sort of something in the middle, but realistically what you're actually trying to do is turn, turn it to the audience and go, well, what do you think? I've given you enough information to kind of, you know, plant some seeds, um, give you the sort of foundations of this um, area so that you can not only understand the tech, but you can now understand what are these weird, awkward, open questions that nobody knows how to answer and I can engage in them. Isn't that exciting? That's way more exciting than being told how the Doppler effect works, you know? I'd rather want to know, like, what are mathematicians arguing about right now? Way more exciting.
Sometimes it feels like science and tech journalists, they can really make or break an idea. And I used to work closely with the team at Futurism.com, and I used to joke with Futurism.com that every time they would write something about blockchain, you would see the impact on the price of Ether on Coinbase. They had such mm-hmm. a massive reach amongst blockchain bros on, on platforms like Facebook that the memes and the media that they would put out would actually impact the, the price of this stuff in the real world. And I just wonder, as a science and tech journalist, do you feel sometimes responsible for other people's uh, innovations? Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, God, I, you know, I I do some work with um, Forbes and, you know, it was about a year ago I was on the tube in London and I looked up at one of the adverts in one of the stations and it had, you know, it was a startup. It had like the product. It was an app, you know, so I had the phone with the app on the screen. And then at the top, it just said like astounding or something like that, Forbes. Not who wrote just Forbes, not the title of the of the, the the journalist or anything. And what that made me think of is like, well, Forbes works on a, two different models. It's got journalism and then it's got contributors. And there are journalists who are contributors like myself, but there are many people who are not journalists who are contributors and the stuff isn't edited to the same degree as the, as the, journal, the actual journalists that work for Forbes. So if you write something in a, in a piece for Forbes and you've got a startup plastering it all across London to, you know, kind of back up why people should buy their their product, then yeah, that scares the living daylights out of me. And that I, you know, I don't also don't want to be part of a marketing campaign for any company. It's one of the reasons that I rarely take anything from a press release because I'm like, I'm not here to be your kind of megaphone. That's that's not my response. That's not my role or my responsibility. I think part of the problem is that the part of the problem where it, when it goes wrong because it's not always a problem is that I think a lot of people who write about science and tech love science and tech and they think it's amazing and so when they see an awesome new technology or an awesome new discovery or whatever the first thing you want to do is believe it and think it's amazing and tell people the story and share it and all that and I think that also comes from this kind of science communication starts from a place of like educating those that don't get it and this kind of really idealistic like we need to get everyone as excited as me right and it doesn't always translate into the same kind of journalism in other ways also because it's hugely productified you know there's a lot of it's a lot of selling which is quite different from a lot of other types of journalism I personally am very 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 aware of my responsibility I think it's part of the reason that I'm not as prolific as I'd like to be because every time I sit down to write a piece I'm going right okay how do I make sure I'm doing this correctly and right and da, 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 and I, in some sense probably I'm a bit too you know cautious maybe you know it, it, the political journalists are being told you're holding the powerful to account that's your job as a journalist in other places in science tech it's more about how to be you know communicate this stuff to the masses it's a very it's like the mission of it seems different um so I think that science and tech journalism as a whole would do do well to you know ensure there's enough people focusing on that mission of holding to account. Again, not being negative, but making it better by holding it to account. That's what journalism is about. It's about making the world better by holding it to account. Now, the responsibility isn't just with the journalists, it's also with the readers, with the general public. And you ask in the book for people to take time to pause and question the statements that they read in science and technology outlets. And how do you find the time? How do people find the time to have that moment of pause and have that moment of questioning in their busy lives? I think it depends on the level by which you're reading and then the impact by which a sharing of that message is going to have. So as we hear in Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. And I think if you're the sort of person that's going to take some form of message and then spread it, 
you have a responsibility to pause a little bit longer than someone who's maybe just reading it and not doing anything with it, scanning past it. Um, I do think that every single person can pause for a second. It's not, it's not really that difficult. And for, for me, the kind of big thing I say is try and not get caught up in the emotional reaction that the writer is, or the headline writer is trying to get from you because that is the that's the point of a headline right is to try and capture you in a certain way but it does mean that you can fall for that very quickly so it's more about pausing and going okay I understand what they're trying to do with this headline you've got my attention I'm gonna not have this emotional reaction I'm now gonna be like okay what, what are they actually trying to say and you can either click through and properly read it because lots of people don't do that properly read it and see if there's nuance in there or just quickly ask yourself you know what does this depend on or what's the context of this message who's saying it what platform are they using why are they selling something are they trying to convince me are they campaigners are they public health officials like who are they and you know that doesn't take very long that's like a second in your head you don't have to go and do tons of research but it would have a huge impact on stopping retweets of things that shouldn't necessarily be retweeted or the sort of decontextualization if that's a word of messages that shouldn't be contextualized in that way and so i suppose that's kind of what i mean by pause i don't mean go and sit in a library and take out 20 books on fusion energy every time you see a headline about it unless you want to go for it great um but no, just more kind of be aware of the role that I hope, I mean, we're aware of what adverts do. Why are we not aware so much of, of hype or of narratives or of, you know, things that are lacking in nuance? You have the journalists and you have the readers, but the third prong is the scientists and the technologists themselves. And I just wonder, firstly, how can technologists ensure that hype doesn't misdirect or doesn't derail the sort of progress they want to see? And for scientists, how do you think they can better communicate the nuances of their work? So I think it's about realizing there's two things that you should communicate or you should try to communicate. Uh, one is the reality of what's going on. So exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it and the vision of why you're doing it and making it really, really clear which is which. I think a lot of time where a hype happens is when there's a miscommunication or a misunderstanding around vision and current reality. Um, the other thing that I would be aware of is the difference between communicating a single uh, solution problem story um, or problem solution rather story and uh, communicating system stories better. Um, so instead of saying, you know, this is a problem in this industry. This is how many people it affects. We've made this thing. It solves the problem. That's a very, there, there, there's truth in that, but it'll be missing stuff. And it's very easy for people to, to get lost in that narrative very quickly. Of course, it's very good for getting money and whatnot, but system narratives are are more truthful and are not necessarily that much more complicated to um, to communicate. I think people think that it's harder to communicate this stuff. It's not, it, does, it takes a little bit more effort and responsibility, but we should all have that effort responsibility and not be lazy. So so I, I, I think it's those kind of two areas, this vision versus reality, and then this problem uh, solution uh, versus system narrative. There's there's questions to be asked around, you know, whether it's a scientist or a business or whoever, around what messages are you putting out? What's the reason you're putting them out? And are you being thoughtful about the, the actual narratives that you're creating? 
you you break the book down into three sections and under those three sections you feature three different types of technology and then the first section is the now section which focuses on the future of food on cancer cures and on batteries and reading that section i i couldn't help but think that those are the kind of save the world sorts of technologies and i know you were to a degree critical over save the world narratives but isn't it better to have those sort of lofty goals to want to save the world rather than just have banal incremental aims to save the world? Oh yeah, no. I mean, my argument is that the people seeing these are actually doing very incremental things and so it's not fulfilling the narrative that they're using. I think the narrative, seeing that we want to do it and genuinely trying to do it, great, awesome, as long as you're doing it thoughtfully and that you're you're thinking about how you're actually trying to do it and not assuming there's only one way of doing it you know um but i you know i think that a lot of the issue around save the world narratives is they are used to minimize and blinker and distract people from the reality that is incremental progress if you look at innovation that happens in agritech you can split it into stuff that feeds the hungry um, and stuff that feeds the wealthy <laughs> in comparison to the hungry. And, and both use the term feed the world, by the way, both you know innovations in the space are talked about in terms of feeding the world. And that's where I see a problem, right? Because you start having this kind of misattribution of, of kind of um, what's really going on. I mean, vertical farming is a perfect example. Vertical farming right now Maybe in the future, who knows? But right now, vertical farming is not feeding the world. It is getting expensive salads to people who live in cities. That's what vertical farming is currently doing. And if we talk about vertical farming as a solution to feeding the world and don't be really clear about the current state of the technology, the the issues, the inherent energy usage, for instance, issues in the technology, and you know whether or not we're actually going to expand the innovations into countries that that need it slightly more than say you know New York City. So again, it's 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 how you attribute that narrative and precisely what you're attributing it to. One of the things I've mentioned in the in the food chapter is if you look at investment in agritech innovations, it's massively gone up over the last couple of years. It's amazing the amount of uh, attention that's going into sort of farming tech. But most of that is going into like Deliveroo and companies like this. And you're kind of like, is that feeding the world? Are we saving the world? Or are we getting stuff delivered to us in cities? So I don't think there's anything wrong with us all trying to save the world, but using the narrative when you're not is very problematic. Looking at some of those future food examples, I mean, vertical farming, yes, it is based in cities, but it, maybe I'm just believing the hype, but it is now 120 times more efficient than field farming. It does use less energy, and the fact that you don't have to ship this stuff halfway across the country means that you're reducing fuel costs. So I just not wonder. True. That's not true. Not true? <laughs> not Why true. not? Because if fuel costs are higher in short, because you're, burst, you're having to stop loads in a city, short trips. It's not fuel efficient. What's more fuel efficient is a, a lorry going across the country than a small van in a city having to wheedle around. So fuel efficient arguments are, are not necessarily true and it depends on every single journey. Also, you're talking about efficiency. Well, efficiency for what? It doesn't negate the need for other forms of farming, right? You still need to grow potatoes and anything with roots and anything that has a flower of some kind, like a, like a, a strawberry or something like that, right? Because it's efficient. It's efficient making greens. It's efficient making salad greens. It's not efficient when you do potatoes. And so it, you aren't negating the need 
for farming. You're not solving the issue of soil depletion. You're not solving the issue of, you know, lorries having to transport uh, stuff across uh, across countries. You're creating salad and other certain types of things that you can grow in cities. And that's good. That's useful. At the moment, with the current state of things, we are not at the point where we can make these claims. We can say that that's what we're trying to do and we can outline those methods and then we can say, well, is that method the best method? Are we, you know, is it realistic to say that we're actually going to be able to do that? But saying vertical farming can do this is incorrect. And that's what I mean by hype, right? It becomes an issue of having to see the whole thing in aggregate, essentially, the entire system. And, the system. And to your point, the, the supply chain that, that contributes to the entirety of farming. It's, it's so funny you mentioned hamburgers because it makes a feature in the in the book, Impossible Burger. And the, the wonderful thing about Impossible Burger that is that even the brand name is a form of hype. In fact, it makes yeah, me question clever. the brand name because Impossible Burger has now proven that it is possible, and they are selling these things to I think it's uh, Burger King in the uh, in the US. So when you have a hyped name like Impossible Burger, where do you go from there? When what was previously impossible is now just possible. Well, it's also do you call it a burger? I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's a whole bit, there's a whole big debate around um, plant based milk and whether or not we should call it milk does it count as dairy and all these sorts of things because it's obviously not dairy but it's masquerading as dairy and and you know and and fair play because obviously people want to replace things i don't know i mean i i feature i feature the kind of alternative uh, alternative meats and i kind of I obviously have everything in there from insects uh, as protein to plant-based alternatives to lab-grown alternatives which are obviously different um, and even things like corn one of my bigger questions is around acceptability and how do you convince people to shift their uh, their behavior so in some sense calling it the impossible burger is very clever because you're trying to, you're not necessarily trying to attract vegans you know actually a lot of times vegans won't buy this stuff because they're not bothered about necessarily eating burgers what you're trying to get is either ex meat eaters who have moved over for ideological purposes but still like burgers or people who like burgers that are hesitant to move so you've got to make a case essentially it's exciting it's good we've done the impossible we've created you know you get you get to cheat essentially you don't have to change your behavior you get to kind of um you know come in the side door and so it's, it's a clever way of doing it and again you know there's an argument to made that that's a really, really good thing. We need to trick people into into switching behaviours around meat consumption, all these sorts of things. So it's clever for sure. You focus on three more technologies, and, and they're the uh, the more industrial feeling technologies. They're, they're energy, their space, and their quantum computing. And I love that you're so positive about the idea of space. But does it feel like space is the example of where we have the most hype? Because it feels like most space startups are just complete and utter bollocks, for want of a better word. I mean, I, I remember going to some of these space startup fairs down in, in San Jose and in San Francisco, and you'd walk around the conference floor and you'd have these small space startups in their booth exhibiting a poster and uh, exhibiting a PowerPoint. And you'd go up and you'd see these designs for these beautiful space labs. And you'd ask them, wow, this is incredible. How are you going to get the funding and when are you going to build it? And they'd turn around to you and go, oh no, no, we're not going to 
build it. Mm. We just have the intellectual property for it. And we have a patent on this small thing within this uh, space ecosystem. And what we're hoping is that either SpaceX or NASA are just going to purchase us within the yeah. next 10 years. And, and that's the way we're going to make our return on investment. And you think, uh, well, that's crazy. How can you get away with just stagnating innovation by just holding on to the space IP? So do you think that the space is one of these really tricky space, <laughs> really tricky spaces, spaces yeah. where, where hype is really uh, stagnating um, our ability to actually make real world uh, changes and innovations? My argument is that we're way too optimistic and way too idealistic about space. And the biggest piece of feedback I've got about that chapter is I'm too negative um, <laughs> by people who love space. I mean, a lot of that is fueled by sci-fi. A lot of us, that is fueled by this sort of mission-driven, um, you know, new frontiers, adventure kind of um, narratives around going to space that have been apparent since the 1950s and 60s. And this whole idea of like new space is 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 the the kind of current narrative around it this you know things will be different in space utopias in space and the argument that i make in the chapter is that what's really happening in space right now is not space hotels and asteroid mining and and you know holidays and all that jazz it's a, a satellite business it's a communications business like every single industry on the planet it does have its problems it has its power problems it has its mining problems it has you know all the stuff that every other industry you can look at and say you know sustainability problems all, you know um whether you look at retail and say oh it's bad because of this or you look at oil and say it's bad because of this we're not very good at doing that with the space industry because we are caught up in this idea of it being this other thing this future thing that is at one point humanity is going to sort itself out before we go to space i mean i just think that's crazy and a lot of the stuff that's said about space is this idea of there was a bit there's a bit i quote where someone says it's talking they're talking about asteroid mining the things we we war have wars over with resources on planet earth are infinite in space so he's essentially arguing that like war wouldn't be a thing if we could do asteroid mining in space it's like no, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We we will be having different sorts of war. I mean, the, the argument that, that right. they're making there is you have abundant access to gold, you have abundant access to rare earth minerals. But the crazy thing is, what you don't have on an asteroid is abundant access to water and oxygen. So suddenly, here on Earth, we could build buildings out of gold, but water and oxygen will suddenly become these rare commodities in the way that gold yeah. and rare earth minerals have. So well, and, and that's actually the thing you can get quite a lot of from the mining. Going back to what you said about IP, because I think that's really interesting. I mean, that's basically the, the model of biotech, right? Like you, you just you pay not you just patent something and sell it but i mean you know it's <laughs> a lot of work that goes into these things most of the time um but the idea is that you try and get a patent you sometimes maybe have to like you know go through if it's medical you might need to go through a, a clinical trial or two before someone will buy it but the, the point is you're trying to essentially either be bought as a company or sell a license um to something to one of the big pharma there's not necessarily i was gonna say there's not necessarily something wrong with that i mean there are many things wrong with it but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad innovation or it's not innovative um i mean a lot of the time with deep tech it's actually daft for inventors to try and take to market the thing that they invent because they don't have the distribution they don't have the money to run the trials they can't get accredited they can all these sorts of things and so in some sense trying to get nasa or spacex or whatever to buy you is actually probably the best way of getting it to market so it doesn't necessarily negate it but what it what again it's this lack of clarity it's the lack of being upfront. and the thing is is like 
it's interesting. It's an interesting business model. It's an interesting thing to put forward. It's not boring. But we're caught up in this, oh, we need to make a cool poster with, we are going to, you know, and you see it with with people who are trying to sell uh, sell patents on their their biotech, whether it's, oh, we're, we're going to cure cancer with this. It's like, well, not you're not. You've invented something that eventually, you know. And I think actually telling those stories, have the bravery to do it. Have the bravery that people will take you way more seriously. You, you might not get the interest of the masses, but you'll get the interest of the people who matter in terms of advancing your business, you know, whether it's the investors or the policymakers or whoever. And um, and you'd probably get a lot more respect from the media because they'd be like, thank God someone's actually being honest with me. How do you tell the system story? And the system of like business model and IP, again, might just be because I'm a system nerd, is fascinating. And it's interesting to be like, oh, so you've decided to do that. Then you're going to do this. You've made this platform. Hmm, that is actually really, really clever. And there's something interesting in that story as opposed to going, we're eventually going to build a rocket. It's kind of like, because no one's going to believe it. And it's not yeah. true. So, you know. We could talk about space startups forever, but the, the only space startup I've ever seen where I've gone, oh, you know what? This is actually happening and actually um, living out in the world. Um, there's two, actually. One is Made in Space, who managed finally to get a 3D printer onto the International Space Station. And another was just a very banal company that was sending CubeSats up into space. But they were sending these CubeSats with small little containers, 10 by 10 containers, and there were 10 of these slots that they could put in this CubeSat. And what they were filling the containers with were ashes of your dead mm. relatives so they could uh, oh, yes, uh, take your ashes um, place it into this CubeSat they were charging about $2,000 for that and there were a thousand of these um, uh, little containers that you could put your ashes into so they were making you know close to $200,000 just on uh, collecting the ashes and putting it into the CubeSat and it only cost them about 20000 to send it into space thanks to the Russians so it was the only time I've ever actually seen a real space business <laughs> a business that actually makes money right now today from space no but see that's that's the thing that's that's where that's 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 the thing there's <laughs> lots of space companies that make money right now and uh -huh. they do it in satellites that's yeah. how you make money in space right now you either build satellites launch satellites analyze the data from satellites sell the comms network that come off satellites um store the data that comes off satellites all these companies make make money, do very well, or are set to, you know, if they're early stage, because there's a huge market, a humongous market, a growing market, especially when you think about Wi-Fi access and internet access globally, we're trying to increase that. That That's part of, I guess, the hype that I try and um, explore in that chapter. As I say, you know, we're hearing about all these new space, you know, kind of crazy ideas that are interesting and fascinating. Oh, put your ashes in space. That's exciting. But the reality of a situation is this is a satellite business. That is, that is what it is. And Elon Musk is not making money from trying to get to Mars. He makes money in the satellite business. That's how he makes money. So age old phrase, follow the money, like work out who is, that's one of the ways you beat hype. You work out what actually is making money, who is, you know, not necessarily who's investing, but who's got revenue <laughs> and who's able to kind of, you know, grow companies and all that sort of thing. And it's a really quick way of realizing, okay, what are people talking about this really exciting versus what's the reality, the current situation and that. That's something that I really wanted to try and bring to, to the fore with, you know, space in particular. And again, not to make it boring, the satellite industry is actually really interesting, would you know? And it, you know, so again, it's like trying to bring a little bit of like interest and excitement and hopefully empower people to feel that they can kind of engage with it um, in a way that's beyond one day we'll go to Mars. 
Now, before we go to the uh, YouTube questions, I do want to focus on the last section of the book, which is brain-computer interfaces, artificial intelligence, and oddly enough, aliens. Um, I guess my first question, Gemma, is, uh, is artificial intelligence out to steal our jobs? <laughs> yeah, no, the, the argument I make is that it is uh, that it is not. Um, the narrative robots are going to steal their jobs or AI is going to steal their jobs is problematic because you other the technology, you blame the technology. Whereas if you say corporate executives are making active decisions to employ automation as opposed to humans, that's not me saying that's a bad thing. I mean, it may sound sarcastic to you, but I'm just stating the facts. Some people would argue that's a bad thing because obviously you're uh, making people redundant and putting profit before people and all these sorts of things. But then you could also make the argument that that's, you know, efficient and useful and, you know, you're freeing up humans to do more creative thinking and all these sorts of things. But the problem is if you use robots are going to see their job or AI is going to see their job as the narrative, you end up talking about rights of robots. When's the singularity going to happen? What is creativity? Things that are very kind of philosophical, very, you know, in the future, which are fun, interesting conversations to be had. But then you're not having conversations about universal basic income, reskilling of people, power of corporates. Should people be able to make decisions like this? Should we tax? Should we have an innovation tax? I mean, this is an interesting thing, this whole idea of, I think it was Bill Gates said we should tax robots if we if we do automation, which sounds like a compelling thing. You know, oh, tax robots. Yeah, let's not tax people. But when you again reframe it and say we should tax innovative companies who have employed automation really efficiently and quickly, we should essentially fine them for that. Of course, that sounds like a really bad thing. So, you know, if, if, if you're on sort of the, my side of the kind of, not that I'm on side, but if you're on the side of the employee, I would argue you should say tax robots but then not never say robots are stealing jobs because you essentially nudge people towards your your worldview. But again, it just comes back to this whole idea of othering. If we don't know, if, if we keep blaming technology as opposed to individuals, that's when we start to lose control. And one of the big fears around AI and robots is we lose control. And the argument that I'm trying to make is that, well, if we keep referring to them as them and not hold those to, to account who are the ones building it right now, then yeah, we will lose control. That is what will happen. So we need to understand what control means right now and where our limits are. Um, and a lot of that does come back to language. What are your thoughts on brain-computer interfaces? Because folks like Brian Johnson and uh, Elon Musk with Neuralink and Brian Johnson with Kernel and Facebook with their still yet fairly unknown project are all espousing this idea that we can directly connect the brain to machines. And in many cases, that's the way we're going to overcome the singularity because we're just going to upgrade our brains. But you help us sort of navigate some of the issues with those proclamations and these claims that we can directly interface the human body with technology. Do you think it's a case of hype or do you think it's actually just a pure misunderstanding of how brains interface with Work. hardware? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's two things here. Um, in terms of what we currently can do, in some sense, we've we've done amazing things when it comes to brain-computer interfaces in the medical field. Um, you've all seen those videos where, you know, you've got a paralyzed person who's got this big sort of jack uh, literally inserted in their brain as a hole in their head and they can move their legs for the first time in however many years, right? So we, we've, we've done amazing things when it comes to brain-computer interfaces. In terms of what I think the way it's spoken about in the kind of new age brain computer interfaces around kernel and Neuralink, this idea of, you know, being able to meld man and machine or women and machine and, uh, and you know, take control of AI and, and all this. That's not the reality of what we can do right now. So that's a very, very far future vision. 
where my sort of take on brain computer interfaces is that I think we would do well to separate what we want and what we need. And, you know, a lot of technology has its, or the way we talk about technology is has its roots in sci-fi. And I, I, at the start of the chapter, I talk about my two favorite device, sci-fi devices. Um, it's the, you know, point of view gun from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the, the woman can shoot the man and he doesn't die, but he, um, you know, he feels, he understands how she feels. <laughs> it's like a lot of people who are, uh, slightly more empathetic or feminine energy, whatever you want to call it, normally want that of their partners. Um, and, and the other one is the, is the sort of brain jack, the USB jack from the matrix, you know, you can plug in and learn anything, right? Those are, those are my two things. I want to be understood and I want to learn anything. That's like me to a T. Um, so, so I'm like, that would be awesome to have these amazing sci-fi devices. And the next step for that would be, I'm going to support anyone who tries to make them. And if you think about it, being understood by people understanding what's in your brain and being able to learn anything is essentially the goal of brain computer interfaces. That's what, that's what they're tapping into this idea that we want to be able to do anything, think anything, be understood. And the pro there's many problems with it, particularly when it comes to like socioeconomic equality inequalities, um, you know, haves and have nots, you know, what happens when some people who can afford or get access to these devices when, if, and when they work in the way that we, we desire, you know, get to sit an exam with, you know, months of extra learning versus someone who hasn't, how's that fair? Um, are we going to get to the point where, you know, right now you essentially have to have an email? Of course you have choice. You don't have to sign up for an email, but you can't really take part in, in civilized society without one. It's quite difficult to do that. So is it, are we going to get to a point where if everyone has one, you're not going to have a choice, even though you don't want something in your brain, normally probably sold by a company that's getting all of your information. Um, so there's lots of interesting, again, far future. Um, but if you assume, we're going to get there and you assume it's going to happen, then we have these problems. What I say is, well, should we even bother going there? You know, why don't we just focus on the medical elements? Why don't we just focus on giving back the human things that people lose through disease or accident or whatever, and not try and do the superhuman thing that can cause huge issues? And it's a question I think we don't ask often enough in technology is, you know, do we need this? Is this inevitable? And as it's an assumption that technology is, an, is inevitable, I think can be quite problematic at times. So there is a degree of argument to be had to say, look, at least exploring some of these things allows us to incrementally uh, learn more and more about the human body and the human brain. Uh, a friend of mine, Nigel Ackland, a um, amputee, looks at what's going on with the brain jack and says, look, you know, it's wonderful that they're enabling this person to move their arms, uh, the paralyzed person to move their arms. But the reality of the fact is this person went through a traumatic injury to become paralyzed. And now you're arguing that we should start drilling holes in their head. It, it just doesn't make sense that these individuals should then become the, the fodder for science and technology innovation. And in many ways, the BCI chapter reminded me a lot around prosthetics and prosthetic envy and yes. how anybody yes. with, a, with a 3D printer back in 2016, 2017 suddenly thought they could print a 3D printed prosthetic limb because yeah. self-printed limbs was this big thing. And yes, it 
did a wondrous job at getting uh, limbs to the people who needed them the most, but the reality was a lot of people were 3D printing limbs that just weren't fit for purpose. 50% yeah. of them were because the people had the proper kit, but everybody else just had a maker bot, downloaded some things and thought they could do it too because they got attracted to the hype. So you're absolutely right, Gemma. These things, they're, they're so complicated. They're so nuanced. They they have effects and effects on themselves. And I'm going to take um, a couple of questions from uh, YouTube. The first one is from Meg, who asks, uh, is there a surefire way to critically look at the integrity of people creating these narratives? In, in other words, is there a way that we know we can trust someone is not just selling us a dream? In actual fact, they're there is a degree of reality ar- around what they're espousing. In some cases, fame is the judgmental level. This is why Elon does so well. Uh, ideas are talked about for years and years and years, but until someone who is either famous or rich enough to actualize that thing says it, does it become a reality? So how do we measure uh, integrity to understand as to whether this person is, is being honest with us or just selling us a dream? That's that's a great question. It's actually something I'm thinking a lot about at the moment in terms of like pseudo measures for expertise that the internet has kind of um, created. So, you know, they have lots of followers and a blue tick. They must be trustworthy. Um, You know, I have a blue tick, so trust me. Gemma, we both have blue ticks, so we are very trustworthy. Well, that's what I mean. And it's like, you know, Forbes 30 under 30 is pseudo measurement. There's many people on there I've seen over the years. I'm like, really? I suppose what I'm trying to say is I think there's a lot of ways that we try to measure people and try measure whether it's integrity or success or whatever. And we need to do them because it's very, very difficult to make sense of really complex systems. And it's difficult to try and, as you say, assess the integrity. But again, we have to come back to this idea that when we try and find a simple answer to a question, is this person trustworthy? where we can so easily come up with the wrong answer if we try and find a simple way of answering that question. The reality is it's complex. I don't think that there's a recipe for checking someone's integrity, but I do think that the critical thinking in practice is how you do it. And it's about, you know, checking credentials, Googling, see who else is endorsed, what other things are they saying beyond what they're saying? What's the flow of money? What's the flow of power? It's not assuming that everyone is a bad person or that everything's a conspiracy or that nobody's trustworthy. But I do think we have a responsibility to not just believe what we read, whether that's this person one Forbes 30 under 30, therefore they're successful. It's like, well, no, anyone can apply for Forbes 30 under 30, you know that, and anyone can put an application in and anyone can read the application and all these sorts of things. So, you know, that's not necessarily the best way of measuring. It's a good sifting mechanism, but it's not, necess- it's not the only measure. This idea of, is there a way of determining integrity? I, I would, I would say yes, it's called critical thinking, but also no, because it's not a framework. The other thing I want to quickly say is I'm not advocating for everyone to not trust experts. This is where you get climate denying and anti-vaxxers, right? Where there's a problem or a difficult thing to do in science and tech is how do you ensure that it's trustworthy without asking people to blindly trust you? And I think it's about encouraging um, critical thinking and also, you know, sitting back and going, well, what do I think? 
you know, and finding other sources and comparing. The danger so it comes sometimes with the weird middleman of the PR agency. A lot of people who can look like they have a lot of integrity and can find themselves on some incredible stages and, and publish incredible things. But in actual fact, there's a lot of engineering that happens um, below them or underneath money, them, whether it's how they, plumbing, yeah, whether it's how they dress or how they speak or even the things that they say. Um, sometimes they're not always the, uh, the agency of that individual. We have another uh, question from YouTube, this time from uh, Cyber Salon, I'm assuming it's Ava Pasco, um, who asks, is hype just the socializing of a new idea? In other words, is hype really, really useful for getting the general public and people uh, used to and comfortable with a new concept? Um, yeah, I think it can be. Again, it comes back to how do you do it in a responsible way and how do people who are on the other end of it effectively assess it to work out if they're believing it because it's founded on reality or whether they're believing it based purely on narrative. And I think that's where we have to be careful around hype. Yes, we can use it to get to gather attention, but it's kind of like cheating. It's like saying, I've got this really exciting thing. It's not really that exciting, but I'm going to tell you it's exciting and hope that you believe me, as opposed to being upfront and telling you what actually is it actually is happening. And then if people are excited, it's actually more truthful. And I know that that's, that's minimizing because of course it's difficult to get the full message across and blah, blah, blah. But in some sense, I think sometimes hype can be a plaster over something that's actually not that great. It's misleading. You're, are you really socializing? Are you really understanding what people think about it when you're not actually being fully truthful and fully transparent about what the reality of it is? You're, you're only socializing the idea, not the reality of what, of what the tech or science is. Well, we have another uh, question from YouTube, this time from Digital Void, um, which is Josh Chapterline. And how would you, if you would at all, differentiate between uh, hype and a person or a company's desire to create their vision through causative thinking. So I think in a way this kind of goes Similar back to- Similar to your, yeah, the point what, about- what, what I was earlier asking, how, how do you differentiate between those things? How do you rally the troops and also responsibly use, use hype? This whole idea of like build it and they will come is not always true, right? We know that. But at the same time, if you create something that's properly transformative, not incrementally transformative, properly transformed. I'm talking about like fusion energy here. <laughs> I'm not talking about an app, right? I, I suppose I kind of refuse to believe that nobody's going to pay attention at all, right? And especially if you if you then try with the proof that you have. And I, you know, I understand that sometimes it's difficult to get to that proof without having the buy-in, right? It's difficult to get funding, it's difficult to get attention, all that sort of stuff. But I think it's more impressive to find ways, find ways around it, find ways of proving it, find ways of getting people's attention and trust that isn't almost lying. I suppose that's where I come back to this whole thing of it's a tool, right? You can use the tool in a way that you can advertise and talk about. I, I'm not against advertising. You know, I put Facebook ads up to try and get people to pre-order my book, right? I, you need advertising, but it's it's just about being truthful about what it is that you're advertising and not using oversimplified narratives that, that you can normally know is going to push people in the wrong direction, right? If I said this book is going to make you understand how to beat hype all of the time, that's the goal of the book. That's the vision of the book that I believe if you read it a million times and really take in what it's saying, arguably it might maybe fulfill on that but i would that would be not only hyping but kind of knowing that i would be sort of lying a little bit and that's the sort of hype i'm talking about is that stuff that's 
it's different saying my goal for the book is this. You know, it's funny. I actually the ad that I did on um, I think it was on Facebook. I wrote a little post underneath the book, and I said, you know, I wanted to create a book that did da 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 da. I wanted to do this. And I felt like that was the most responsible way of talking about my goal for the book without, you know, declaring that if you read it, you will get this. And I actually had someone comment under it being like, well, you should have tried harder then because I'd said I wanted as opposed to this does. And I was like, that's the problem. This kind of one people wanting to get these simple answers and these simple solutions. It just doesn't exist. It's not the, it's not the world we live in. I guess a follow-on to that that answer is from the BBC's Ian Forrester, who asks, um, surely you need some ideas or narratives that drive people to think bigger. And he gives the example of Apple, who are well known to demo things before they were actually ready. And, and Ava Pascoe followed up by saying, well, look, could you argue actually that vaporware in some rare cases actually moves the world forward? Yeah, but it's being put forward as a vision. I think there's a difference between saying, imagine a world when it could look like this. Here it is here. This is what it would look like. This is what it could do. We are getting there. We're close or whatever, you know, or like, or not even, you know, to be as explicit, just imagine a world where, and it's right here in my pocket. I think it's just the difference between what is vision and what is reality. And, and when people misinterpret your vision, correcting it, not sort of, riding the wave of incorrect information that's that's where i see the problem it's like and you know it's also detrimental for you at the end of the day because if if you mismanage expectations as we all know things can go drastically wrong if you say something can do this we have built a thing that does this and then someone you, you only need one example of when it doesn't work for folk to not believe anything you say anymore so it's a dangerous it's a dangerous line to kind of go down so you know i think it's the difference between vision and and hard claim and also what that what that vision is you know how big is it how what kind of promise are you making to people what kind of hope false hope are you instilling in people things a bit different with like an eye a thing that plays music versus feeding the world <laughs> I, I think that goes back in some ways to your idea of responsible hype um and, and it would be irresponsible of me not to mention the current crisis we've done so well to get this far and not mention <laughs> covid-19 but i just wonder Gemma, how do you think hype is causing challenges to our understanding of the current COVID-19 crisis, or at least the science behind this crisis? I think that actually hype is, um, I think it could have been used better, shall we say. I think the tool, you know, hype for good could have been used in a better way. I feel like there's quite a lot, there's a lot of conflicting narratives. There aren't really, there are not that many narratives that are winning out that are also clear. So like stay at home for some people that's very clear, but for others, it's like, well, depending on what, you know, and, and when, and is it okay to go a run? Can I sit in a park bench? Can I not, you know? Um, so you'd argue there's not really much clarity in there for, you know, it's, it's not a really kind of useful hyped up narrative. My sort of take on things is that I think that we haven't used hype for good in a very good way, particularly when we're talking about getting, you know, public health messages out to people and, and, um, and making people feel safe and, and all these sorts of things. I think one of the biggest narratives that I wish was louder is we don't know. We don't know. This is really hard. We don't know. This hasn't happened before. We don't know. And I think this kind of trying to answer questions simply 
in a situation that right now we still don't know the answer um, is is irresponsible and is, is you're kind of missing a trick. Why, why don't we hype up the idea that it's okay to not know and this is going to be hard and we, we all have to accept uncertainty? Why don't we put, you know, time and energy and effort into making that narrative land as opposed to trying to give false hope that can so easily be undermined, which is what's happened multiple times, particularly here in the UK. Another way of looking at it is, but one example I keep coming back to is what happened with the Oxford paper at the end of March. So for any people that don't know, there was a University of Oxford paper that was a preprint that was published that insinuated that um, over half the population had already been infected by by coronavirus. And at the time, that was like a really a, a huge thing to kind of be thinking. And it was sort of influencing a whole load of, you know, oh, we're going to have to change all the policies and, and all those sort of things. The, the FT published this. The headline was like, Half the population may already be affected, says Oxford study or something like that. And it was up for a week. Loads of people were commenting on it. Politicians were commenting on it. People were fearful of this. It was a narrative that really caught on. There was there was hype around this idea of half the population. And a week later, the, the FT published a letter with a whole load of professors, epidemiologists and whatnot from, from Oxford and, and Italy as well, saying, uh, you know, it, it was wrong. There was an assumption made that was not scientifically um, sort of literate. And then there was a whole load of hype around the idea of these scientists are baddies and they shouldn't have published this and the FT are terrible and all these sorts of things. And then we had all these calls for, you know, the science needs to be done better and all this sort of thing. And for anyone who's in science, like preprint is like a normal thing to happen and correcting preprints is a good thing. That is that is science working well. The problem is, is that a newspaper came in and reported on a preprint without taking the context and the message went, you know, crazy. And so there's an interesting thing where it's like... How do we kind of work around the fact that the vast majority of the public don't understand how science works? You know, do we start doing science behind closed doors and start going back and all these amazing movements we've had in open science and preprints being a great thing in that sense? Or do we now, in a sort of frenzy, try and explain preprints to the whole of the UK, which is, is, is obviously ludicrous? So in some sense, it's like, we probably, we either had to be extremely transparent about absolutely everything or use hype for good for these simplified narratives that people can kind of hang on to or, or trust. So I don't necessarily think there's been tons of, there's been misinformation and hype around misinformation and God, look at all the 5G stuff, but I don't actually think there's been some really useful, interesting, hyped up narratives that have been helpful in terms of, I mean, there's been good, you know, lots of people are staying at home, but you know, it's still confusing. In that case, how do we keep people who use hype accountable? Do we need someone censoring hype? Do we need trusted experts to decide what gets airtime? And I guess we're kind of seeing that right now with YouTube being very selective over how it's algorithmically taking down COVID-19 content that doesn't agree with the World Health Organization. So can we actually build that accountability in so that hype no longer becomes an issue in the future? My solution to hype is that everybody thinks their way around it. Hype only has power in its illusion. And if more people started from a mindset of critical thinking, hype wouldn't have its power. It would still be useful because it would still gather attention and then people would look at it in a nuanced manner. I, I've thought a lot about this, like how, you know, 
could you, you know, is it the same as like advertising laws? Could you complain to the ASA and all these sorts of things? And you can do that with, with hype sometimes because you can argue that it's misinformation in some instances, but it's, it's not an easy thing to, to regulate against. And also, you know, it is just sometimes being really loud. And it's also sometimes messages that are true, but are out of context and all these sorts of things. So maybe this is the idealist in me coming out, which does exist, is that I, I think the best way to try and make the situation better is for individuals to change the way they think about messaging and hype and just knowing that hype is a thing and being more more aware of it and you know that that is the goal of the book is to try and be like you have the power <laughs> and the power the power of hype is in its illusion and the spread of its illusion and that only happens if lots of people retweet so you know it's like if you don't retweet or you think about retweeting or you comment above the retweet or something that's when you start kind of creating that nuance and, and having that spread again idealistic we can't obviously get absolutely everyone to do that but i do think with more people doing it maybe there's a sort of logarithmic uh you know you don't maybe don't need that many people to doing it to kind of curb it probably have to test that a bit more empirically <laughs> so so on that note it feels like we all have a responsibility here Gemma, i just want to say thank you for joining us today thank you very much for having me thank you to Gemma for sharing her insights into how hype can obscure the nuances of the scientific process you can find out more by purchasing Gemma's new book, Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It, available now. And don't forget, you can watch the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net, where you can also find out about all of our live stream events. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.